Hello and Happy New Year. This is Thomas at British Culture Albion Never Dies and I hope you had a wonderful holiday season. As we look forward to the year 2024, I thought this is a perfect episode to look back at some ancient history. A little while ago, I did a listener Q&A episode and one thing that really, really grabbed me was a suggestion from a British Bond fan on Instagram, Nintendo Gamer was his old handle, uh, who asked me to do Britain pre-Roman and Christianity. I found that really, really interesting. I ended up focusing on Roman history and Christianity and, and so on and so on. Ended up doing a huge amount of research and throwing much of it away because it was just taking over that listener Q&A podcast. So this is a topic that I decided to run with and I always, always enjoy doing topics from listeners. So, so, why this topic? Well, for one thing, Britishness and Christianity have, I'd say, over the majority of the last 500 years been seen as absolutely intertwined. So, for example, the king, King Charles III, is the head of the Church of England. The reasons why, of course, date back, well, perhaps to Henry VIII, possibly to his son, then his daughters, and so on and so on. The Reformation is a formative time in English history and one that defined our history between ourselves and with our neighbours. And yet, even though it's just the last 500 Years And I hope you enjoyed the readings earlier, by the way, of the King James Bible in my bonus episodes. Even though it dated to the last 500 years of modern English, where Britain was not just defined as being Christian, but also very specifically Protestant. We've been a Christian country since long before then. So, for example, I go most weeks to Bradford Cathedral for their Sunday worship. It is the oldest building in continuous use in Bradford. And even though it is an ancient building, well, better part of about a thousand years old, it was built on the site of an even older place of worship. It is uh, at the top of a hill that overlooks the broad ford that made Bradford, um, but it is uh, a fascinating location. There used to be a stone cross, it's thought originally a wooden cross, but there's a stone cross on the top of that hill. That cross had very intricate carvings and we know this because that cross became part of the very walls of the modern building. It evolved over time, but you can still see those earliest, earliest pieces of history. You walk into the church, the cathedral, you turn left, carry on until uh, you start to get towards one of the chapels. And you can see it along the wall to, uh, to remind people of that ancient heritage. So for us, of course, it seems very, very ancient. I was recently at a church... Uh, in Brompton, near North Allerton, again in Yorkshire, this time North Yorkshire, and there's a church which has Viking carvings um, at the front, uh, near the nave. Um, and these are ancient, non-Christian uh, carvings which were preserved by the church. The reason we have them is because they're taken into the church, and so they haven't been terribly, terribly weathered. So we have this preservation of a non, non-Christian carving, most likely, and we know about it really because it's been protected by the church. And funnily enough, we know a lot about paganism in Britain through Christian writings, which is, of course, a lens, but it's a knowing, a knowing lens. But I'm getting I'm getting ahead of myself. It's pre-Christianity and about the Romans. Of course, Britain does have uh, a great claim to fame, which is the first Christian emperor of Rome was proclaimed in York 
in AD 306. So Constantine I, born in the year 272, died in the year 337. Good stretch. Uh, often known as Constantine the Great, he was the first Christian Roman emperor. And you can still see his statue. You go to York Cathedral, and again outside there you've got the great statue of Constantine looking at his sword, and of course the sword forming a kind of cross. And nearby is uh, the Roman column. But again, if I go right back to the very, very beginning of, of written history, and written history is what I find most interesting, because obviously you have Stonehenge and you have barrows, and you do have really interesting archaeological sites dating back thousands and thousands of years. However, I do find it much more interesting when you can read. I like reading. <laughs> and you can find, well, you can at least find out some names. So Pythias, I mentioned in the previous Q&A, was probably the first person to write about Britain that we know about. Largely we know about him through other people kind of writing about him and making reference to this great scholar who gave us an insight into these uh, bizarre little islands far, far away from ancient Greece. Uh, but we know largely about his on the ocean and these great books because other people like Polybius uh, refers to him and Polybius was writing about 200 to 118 BC hard hard to date anyway the comments that he made on the native drinks of cereals and honey uh, the, the use of threshing barns contrasting with open air threshing it shows kind of an, an acute observation um, and and as I say, normally at school we wouldn't focus on these things. At school, we'd often go back to uh, the Roman Giza, <laughs> Julia Caesar. Of course, we all learn about uh, Julius Caesar at school. We've got the great Shakespeare play that's probably my favourite Shakespeare play. Um, he, of course, came, saw and conquered Britain, or at the very least, he visited and was able to shake a few coins out of the local uh, local chiefs and then head back and never return. Uh, Britain was largely left alone for a good 80-odd years before it got properly conquered uh, by another less interesting and less memorable, <laughs> less memorable emperor. But Roman, the Roman Giza, um, we do learn about, as I say, in school, but also from such important texts as Asterix and Obelix, the uh, the French language uh, comic books, which get translated into almost every language. And I always think, you know, a good British school library has so many of these in so many different languages. I'm told this may have passed, that this may date me. I mean, to be fair, the uh, Asterix and Obelix in Britain uh, was released originally in 1965 in different little editions, and I think the next year as a single volume. That means that some of those references were really, really dated, so I think reading it as a child, there were some things I found truly baffling. The bits that I found easiest to relate to were, funnily enough, the Roman bits, because you can go and see Roman ruins in Britain, which makes it really, really interesting. But as I say, a lot of us go to Julius Caesar because he, he came, he saw, he conquered, and he also wrote good stuff in the Debello Gallico. The Roman, sorry, the Gallic Wars, <laughs> not the Roman Wars, it's probably what the uh, the Gauls called them. But anyway, the Bello Gallico. So, as a few times before, I just really wanted to get back to the original writings, and I found one out of copyright, so it's a 1908 translation, and I just found this really, really interesting. I will read it, and perhaps make a few of my own remarks. Caesar wrote... The inland portions of Britain are inhabited by those who themselves say that according to tradition they are natives of the soil. 
The coast regions are peopled by those who crossed from Belgium for the purpose of making war. Almost all of these are called by the names of those states from which they are descended and from which they came hither. After they had waged war, they remains then began to cultivate the soil. The island has a large population with many buildings constructed after the fashion of the Gauls and abounds in flocks. For money, they use either gold coins or bars of iron of a certain weight. Tin is found in the inland regions, iron on the seacoast, but the latter is not plentiful. They use imported bronze. All kinds of wood are found here, as in Gaul, except the beech and the fir trees. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. They consider it, contrary to divine law, to eat the hare, the chicken, or the goose. They raise these, however, for their own amusement and pleasure. Thank you very much, Julius Caesar. I am now thinking about what one can do with a hare, a chicken, or a goose for amusement or for pleasure. Anyway... Caesar continues, the climate is more temperate than in Gaul, since there are fewer periods of cold. Thank you, Julius Caesar. I am now considering how the climate in Britain is more temperate than in Gaul, which of course maps largely to modern-day France. So Britain has a better climate than France, according to Julius Caesar. Well, if you haven't heard it before, you've, you've heard it here now. Okay, continuing with Caesar, by far... The most civilised are those who dwell in Kent. Again, thank you, Caesar. I'm now considering that he's never come up to Yorkshire. Uh, but are they the most civilised in Kent today? Well, well, do message me. Uh, you've got my email address, which is albionneverdies at gmail.com. Of course, you can contact me on Instagram at FlemingNeverDies. However you choose to contact me, I'll be very curious to know if you think the most civilised part of Britain is Kent. Maybe. Maybe. Anyway, Caesar continues. Their entire country borders on the sea, and they do not differ much from the Gauls in their customs. Very many who dwell further inland do not sow grain, but live on milk and flesh, clothing themselves in skins. All the Britons paint themselves with woad, which produces a dark blue colour, and for this reason they are much more frightful in appearance in battle. They permit their hair to grow long, shaving all parts of the body, except the head and the upper lip. Ten and twelve have wives common among them, especially brothers with brothers and parents with children. If any children are born, they are considered as belonging to those men to whom the maiden was first married. This is their manner of fighting from chariots. At first the charioteers ride in all directions, usually throwing the ranks into confusion by the very terror caused by the horses, as well as the noise of the wheels. Then, as soon as they have come between the squads of horsemen, they leap from the chariots and fight on foot. 
The drivers of the chariots then withdraw a little from the battle and place the chariots together, so that if the warriors are hard pressed by the number of the enemy, they have a safe retreat to their own. Their horsemen possess such activity, and their foot soldiers such steadfastness in battle, and they accomplish so much by daily training that on steep and even precipitous ground they are accustomed to check their excited horses, to control and turn them about quickly, to run out on the pole, to stand on the yoke, and then swiftly return to the chariot. Well, that was from Julius Caesar's De Bello Gallico, <laughs> the Gallic Wars, just a little bit on Britain, because of course Britain was a bit of a side quest for him. He, his main quest was to conquer Gaul, which he did well battling against, I think, Vercingetorix was the Gaul he battled against. Do message me if I'm wrong on that. Um, and of course, Asterix and Obelix, who, who really caused him a lot of trouble, according to the, uh, the comic books. Anyway, ultimately Britain was conquered, not by Caesar, but by his successors. And, as I say, as you travel about, whether in Chester, whether along the Roman road, even in London, you can find all kinds of interesting bits and pieces, and of course, the Roman bath at Bath. But I always find it interesting, the writings from Hadrian's Wall. There are a number of walls that were intended to delineate the border between Roman Britain and non-Roman Britain, and we tended to kind of easily think of that as England and Scotland now, but of course they don't quite match and that's not how they were considered at the time. Anyway, anyway, it's kind of a control checkpoint. Um, we know this from writings from Hadrian's Wall because, as you may know, Britain can be quite damp. And the north of Britain, very damp. And so, all around Hadrian's Wall you get the, uh, the peat bogs and so on, which preserves writings wonderfully well. So the best known ones are the Vindolana tablets, known as the uh, Vin Vindolana, uh, Vindolanda letters, and they're thin pieces of wood about the size of a modern postcard. They're not the Vindaloo postcards, that's what I was trying not to say. Anyway, they were used as writing paper for Roman soldiers garrisoned at the fort of Vindolanda between AD 85 and 130 and uh, yeah they're just little postcards that give you a really nice insight into the uh, the Roman soldiers day to day which quite dull and monotonous I guess uh, because you know one of the most important quests they had was more beer always oh, brilliant insight into ancient British life was more beer please um, and one I really like I have sent you pairs of socks from Satua, two pairs of sandals and two pairs of underpants. So again, we have ancient writing about underpants and socks with sandals. So, surely giving us a great insight into ancient Britain. Of course, the Romans left Britain and uh, it's an interesting thing, it's an interesting thing. When did Roman rule end? I, uh, I decided to have a quick look at Wikipedia, not because it's the best, but because it's, <laughs> frankly, the easiest reach, and it is a really complex topic, so I thought, how best to simplify. So, uh, yeah, the end of Roman rule is a transition, it's a process. Uh, it ended in different parts of Britain at different times under different circumstances. According to Wikipedia in AD 383, the usurper. Magnus Maximus withdrew troops from the northern and western Britain, probably leaving local warlords in charge. Then, in 
407, the usurper, Constantine III, not the first, the third, took the remaining mobile soldiers to Gaul in response to ha, events at the time. Gradually, bit by bit, you get this transfer of power from the Roman Rowan, Romans to their local allies, from their local allies to whoever else. One of the most interesting pieces I've come across, and it's more of a debate than a single source, was that life for a time just carried on. Most people didn't think that they were living through some kind of fall, because after all it starts, we tend to think, in the year 383. We don't normally think of it as being you know, no longer Roman until perhaps the mid-sixth century. So it's a process of you know hundreds of years. It's not in a single lifetime. It's not in a single day or month or year. There's no point where people wake up and think, oh, it's no longer Roman. It's just a gradual evolution. You might notice, for example, the Romans had their you know theatres built out of stone, and maybe it gets a bit chipped. Maybe it gets a bit old. So you construct a, a bit to replace it with with wood or a local stone rather than. A, expensive foreign stone. You might see what we might term the debit of devolution from these uh, these Italianate rulers to local rulers who are operating under their authority towards them just kind of operating on their own authority after all. There were quite a few Roman governors uh, when they came to Britain found how remote it was from the rest of the empire and kind of just declared independence on some occasions allowed to rule by themselves for quite substantial periods of time issuing their own coins and so on before eventually going back into the fold so it might have just been seen as a normal part of life yes they declared independence but we've done that before it doesn't mean anything we might have seen some loss of trade but they might just think well that's that's how it is, you know, sometimes you get more trade, sometimes you get less. We used to trade with these people, maybe it's, maybe it's their problem, not ours. We're good to buy local products. So there is a really interesting question. People who lived through the fall of Rome, at least in Britain, did they think of it as permanent? Were they even aware? Did they care? Did they think of it as the fall of Rome, or did they think of it as the rise of their own little tribes? However they thought of it, later people recorded it in very interesting ways. So, for example, the Angles the Saxons, the Jutes and so on, the Germanic peoples who came in and kind of replaced the Romans, ended up uniting with a single kind of Germanic language we know as Anglo-Saxon or Old English, and they refer to their mythical founders, Hengist and Horsa, and there's all kinds of myths and legends around them. Maybe they were originally brought as mercenaries to advise the, the king of Kent, and then ended up becoming the first Jutish kings of Kent. Some people, some scholars say that the Hengist and Horse are just mythical figures. We don't know who they are because, you know, the Dark Ages, as we used to call it, is a period where we have very little writing and very little reliable writing. It's only when we have Christianity coming back uh, that we start to have, well, actually reliable records because things are being written down. One of the key figures for that is the Venerable Bede. I was a bit surprised when I uh, looked on Wikipedia. He's not the Venerable Bede, he's just Bede. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure he's been known down the ages as the Venerable Bede. So I think I'll carry on with that. He wrote the ecclesiastical history of the English peoples, but it wasn't purely about ecclesiastical matters. It touched on a great deal. So, for example, uh, Hengist and Horsa, I think, are partly known through his writings. He was uh, declared Doctor of the Church by the Pope. Um, and he's the only native of Great Britain to achieve this designation. He was a very skilled linguist and translator, so he made the works in Latin and Greek of the early church founders uh, accessible to his fellow Anglo, Anglo, Anglo-Saxons. Um, so he really was an interesting figure, very, very formative 
but as I say, a lot of how we view, you know, after the Romans, uh, towards what we now think is the medieval era, a lot of this we know about because of Bede and people influenced by Bede. If I head towards a modern, <laughs> say modern scholarship, then I'd pick up the Oxford History of England. Now, this is actually a 1940s um, book that I've got. Yeah, this one was first published in 1943. Good bit of scholarship on, well, what is Englishness, the, uh, the Oxford History of England. Of course, at that time, when you refer to the history of England, it doesn't necessarily just mean what we now think of as England. It will include Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and so on. It's people who classically speak English. Um, it's much debated now, and I, I do occasionally get messages from people saying, oh, just debating the whole thing. That's why I call it Albion never dies, rather than England never dies, or Britain never dies. You can get caught up in language. You could call this the Oxford history of Albion, uh, but they don't. Very importantly, they don't. So Frank Stenton wrote uh, his work on Anglo-Saxon English, and as I was asked about kind of paganism in Britain and so on, pre-Christian Britain, I thought I'd go straight to chapter 4 where he talks about the conversion of the English people. So strap in, because this is a really well-written piece, and I'm simply going to read this one out without too many of my own interruptions, because I do find it fascinating. The heathen background of old English history is impenetrably vague. The names of the chief divinities of English worship have been preserved and a few specific practices have been recorded by historians anxious to condemn them. Writers concerned with the saints of the conversion could not avoid an occasional reference to the temples, idols and priests of heathenism and the principal scientific work of the pre-Danish period, the Temporum Rationae of Bede records a few pieces of information about the chief festivals of the heathen year. As a collection of isolated facts, the English contribution to the general stock of knowledge about Germanic paganism is by no means negligible, but it is indefinite at almost every crucial point. It is often coloured by scriptural reminiscence, and it affords no more than the faintest of clues the nature of beliefs which lay behind observances. In recent years, the range of the materials for the study of old English heathenism has been narrowed in one direction and enlarged in another. In much that has been written about the subject in general, and about the gods of English heathenism in particular, scholars have drawn somewhat freely upon the abundant material which has survived from heathen Scandinavia. But the connection between English and Scandinavian heathenism lies in a past which was already remote when the English peoples migrated to Britain. Much of the Scandinavian evidence has a sophisticated cast, and the danger of using it for the illustration of primitive English beliefs is steadily becoming clearer. It is equally dangerous to use the magical literature of the 10th and 11th centuries as a line of approach towards the English pagan foreworld, for there is the strongest possibility that Scandinavian influence has played upon the fragments of ancient tradition which it incorporates. On the other hand, modern work on English place names has made an unexpectedly large contribution to the store of facts which relate directly to native heathenism. Many of these facts amount to little more than evidence that a particular site was a primitive cult centre. Cumulatively, 
They are important because they prove the strength of heathen feeling and give local definition to the heathen scene. The most important of the literary sources of information about Old English heathenism is the section of the De Temporum Rationae in which Bede names and describes the months of the Anglo-Saxon year. Some of the names are etymologically obscure and were possibly as unintelligible to Bede as they are today. But his occasional misinterpretation of a name does not affect his credibility when he states that a particular heathen festival had been associated with a particular season. According to Bede, the heathen year began on the 25th of December, and certain ceremonies which he did not attempt to describe caused the following night to be named Modra Necht, the Night of the Mothers. The last month of the old year and the first month of the new were both comprised under the name Gili and the modern Yule, a name so old that its meaning is quite uncertain. Solmanath, the name of the second month, is described by Bede as the month of cakes, which they offered to their gods. Most scholars reject this explanation, for no English word sol meaning cake is known. But although Bede seems to have proposed a wrong derivation of the name, his statement about a festival at which cakes were offered to the gods may well be founded on a genuine truth. The third and fourth months, according to Bede, were named respectively after the goddesses Hrethra and Ostra. The fifth was called Thrilmaki, because milks, cows were milked three times a day. And the sixth and seventh were brought together under the name Litha, another ancient word which apparently meant simply moon. And the eighth was called Wodmonath, the month of the weeds. The ninth month was known as Halagomanath, holy month, or as Bede renders the name the month of offerings, a phrase which points unmistakably to a heathen festival held at the end of the harvest. Wintir Filith, the name of the tenth month, is connected by Bede possibly rightly with the appearance of the first full moon of winter. Botmanath, the name of the eleventh month, means month of sacrifice arose according to Bede because they devoted to their gods the animals which they were about to kill. The explanation gives what is by far their earliest reference to the practice of killing off superfluous stock for winter food, and the name shows that the custom with the native economy was made a sacrificial occasion. For all the obscurity of some of the names and the neutral character of the others, it is clear there was a strong element of heathen festivity and the base of the old English calendar. I feel there is a good place to leave it. Anglo-Saxon England by Sir Frank Stenton. Great work, which I've been uh, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying. And I thought that bit from chapter four would just be the most interesting. Describing the months of the year, as we are at January, of course named after the Roman god, Janus, the god with two faces, one that always looks to the future and one that looks to the past. Well, I hope you enjoyed that that little uh, delve into some history of Christianity in Britain, some pre-Christianity, some Roman history. That was all inspired by the podcast listener, British Bond fan, who you can find on Instagram, at British Bond fan. Thank you very much for the suggestion. If you'd like to get in touch with me, as I say, my email address is albionneverdies at gmail.com or on Instagram, I am Fleming Never Dies. 
Again, if you have any suggestions for topics, I always enjoy them. Have a wonderful 2024. I hope you've had a very, very pleasant holiday season. Goodbye.